The reading is taken from Nehemiah, chapter 2, and that's found on page 485 in the Bibles on the pews. Nehemiah, chapter 2, page 485. Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king said, with the queen sitting beside him, then the king asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates? so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel to the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Nehemiah inspects Jerusalem's walls. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, 
Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Good morning. Nice to see you. Let's pray together that God would speak into our lives as we continue our studies in the book of Nehemiah. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you together this morning. And we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for all that the scriptures teach us of your faithfulness, your purposes, your vision. And we pray that in this time together, you would soften our hearts and speak into our lives. Come by your spirit and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we resume our studies in Nehemiah, this morning we're going to look at what it takes to become an effective builder in God's kingdom. What it takes to become an effective builder in God's kingdom. As you walk around Cambridge uh, with your eyes open, you will spot a number of buildings which were designed by Sir Christopher Wren, uh, the very helpfully named Wren Library of Trinity, for example, which rather gives the game away. Actually, slight diversion. When I walk past or punt past the Wren Library, I can't ever forget that there's a little game that sometimes those people who are employed by Scudamore's play when the season of punting is getting on, which is to see the greatest whopper they can get away with to their tour guides. And I once heard one of them say, that is the Wren Library where Magna Carta was signed. <laughs> well, anyway, it couldn't fool you with that. But Sir Christopher Wren was commissioned after the Great Fire of London to design no less than 52 churches in the city of London. But of course, his greatest achievement was to design St. Paul's Cathedral, a new St. Paul's Cathedral. And there's a rather lovely story about him wandering around the cathedral while it was being built incognito one afternoon. And he stopped and asked a number of different laborers what it was they were doing. And the first one said something like, well, I'm shaping these stones. And the next one, who was busy digging in the ground, said he was dig digging drainage ditches. And another one was removing rubble. And then he came across a worker who was sorting out various bits of debris into different piles. And he asked him what he was doing. And he said, I'm building London a most magnificent cathedral. And 
what the story illustrates is you can have a small little goal that you're completing, but you might be part of something much, much bigger. And it's very possible this morning that all of us feel that our part in building the kingdom of God is incredibly small against the background of God's greater purposes. And it's very possible that we get rather discouraged looking down at our particular corner. The first thing, the first thing we need to be an effective builder for God is to connect and buy into the master's master plan. That's the first thing that has to happen. Shortly after I became a Christian, I remember <clears throat> being struck by something that Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And it, it hit me quite forcibly because I'd never seen it before and didn't know it was part of a mandate of Christians. That God is saying, Jesus is saying, I've chosen you and equipped you, that's what appointed means, to go and do something, to actually make a difference, to bear fruit. I think somehow I had in my head that it wasn't like that, that Jesus chose people to believe in him and they just continued life as normal. But we know when you're educated through the scriptures, that's not the case. Jesus commissions us, appoints us, sends us out, saying, you're to bear fruit now. And I know I've shared this picture before, but it motivates me, and I'm hoping it will motivate you, that sometimes when you walk into shops, you'll see a royal warrant above the door, which says, by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen, and then it will say underneath what they're appointed for, provider of cut glass. But above our heads in this church, above every single head is, by appointment to the King of Kings purveyor of much fine fruit. That's good, isn't it? That's what Jesus Christ has written above your head and my head. And what has to happen if we're going to be effective in building God's kingdom is we have to get caught up in the vision and purposes of God. And it's somewhat subversive the way this kingdom comes because Whatever your work is during the week, whether it's working as a doctor, working in a school, working at home, bringing up a family, working in a garage, working in academia, whatever, bit by bit by bit, almost one might say under the counter, little by little, we are bringing in the kingdom of God. And then when we come together as a church, it ought to be much more overt because it's luminous and it's a chance to celebrate together we are demonstrating and illustrating the kingdom of God. And the first thing I want us to see in chapter 2, which we picked up on a little bit last week, is with Nehemiah, the vision that God gives him really gets under his skin. We, we noticed, we just took note, that Nehemiah wept, mourned, fasted, and prayed. And I just flagged up that there's a gap of four months between chapter one and chapter two. It wasn't an instant prayer. It wasn't a one-minute wonder. Little by little, every day he was literally impacted by this vision of God's people in disgrace. 
back in his homeland. And let me tell you, it's totally inevitable for us that if we too will pray, seek the Lord, share our hearts with him day by day by day, it's inevitable, I think, that he will share his heart with us. And it will get under our skin. And it will become a life force for us, a motivation for our lives, the greater purpose of our life, which is to connect with God's purpose. And this has to happen if we're going to be effective kingdom builders for God. It has to really get to a place where it disturbs us. And it's what happened to Nehemiah, and it's, you can see it in the events of chapter 2. You'll have picked it up when it was being read to us. He was the king's wine waiter, but that doesn't really do justice to the job because he was more, if you like, than an advisor from the wine society. He, he was much more the king's personal assistant and advisor. He had close contact with the king and the queen every single day. He was much trusted, but he never forgot as we see in verse 2, he never forgot that the king was all-powerful. And that's why when the king says to him, why are you looking so sad? In his own words, he's very much afraid. And what we're being told here is there came a point in Nehemiah's life when he simply couldn't compartmentalize anymore. What he was feeling in private flowed over into his job. The pain that he experienced, the, the acute discomfort of knowing that God's name was being dragged through the mud back at his home city of Jerusalem, shone in his face. And so the king was bound to say, why are you looking so sad? God's vision for your life and my life, let's find another word for it, the word vision God's preferred future for you and for me and for his church needs to capture us. And when it captures us, it doesn't mean that we become insensitive people who behave inappropriately. It just means that we'll never ever get it out of our system. That's the first thing that needs to happen. And along with that vision, as it captures us, we do well to do what Nehemiah does, which is to really think through what's important. Could you summarize in one sentence what it is that God has put on your heart? Nehemiah can. In verse 5, when he's given the opportunity, he's asked, what is it that you want? He says, basically, I want to rebuild the city of Judah. And if we're going to be ambassadors for Christ, as we are committed to, we need to think through then, what's our message? How would you put it in a way that sounds like you? Not like me, but like you. And there are a number of reasons it's worth pondering this, because with vision comes vitality. When we allow ourselves to get caught up in God's purposes, we get a new lease of life. Why? Because we start to shape our lives around God's purposes for our lives, God's greater purpose. 
And as Nehemiah gets motivated, you can see he gets energized. He springs to life. And with him, other good things start to happen. There is a contagion as God's people come alive. Without vision, as the scriptures tell us, Proverbs chapter 29, the people perish. You atrophy. With vision, we get motivated. In a couple of weeks' time now, we'll have Commitment Sunday here in All Saints. And I hope most of you, well, I'd love it if all of you had got a letter from me, but I know some people are not yet on the database. But it explains the purpose of Commitment Sunday is to really recalibrate ourselves and think, am I committed to Christ? Am I committed to HT? How could I contribute? And it's just worth me re-articulating HT's vision. Vision doesn't have to be original. Christian vision doesn't have to be original. It has to be faithful. Jesus doesn't ask us to rewrite his mandate. He asks us to follow his mandate. And in many ways, our vision hasn't changed since this Church of HT was founded. Charles Simeon, who uh, I love talking about, not because I want us to worship Charles Simeon or to stroke his teapot or open his umbrella, but because I applaud his vision. And he had written on his pulpit, which has long since um, disappeared. I don't mean just in the building project. It was disappeared hundreds of years ago. But he had written on his pulpit so that he could see it. Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And it was to remind him that the primary purpose of Holy Trinity was to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And that's still our primary purpose. What a great, great vision to help people in this city of Cambridge to know Jesus better, to get to know him. And not just that, we want to equip people who do know him to follow him more closely and more lovingly. We've, we put it like this, we want to help people come to Christ learn to love, and love to learn. Why? Because in many ways, we're addressing a famine situation. Not a famine of food, but a famine of knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amos prophesied, the days are coming when I'll send a famine throughout the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they won't, won't find it. Well, we're here to help them find it. I think the phrase, get a life, is appropriate here. Get in touch with God's purpose for your life, which is to connect all the energy, all that God has given you, all the skills that he's given you, in his service, whatever area of life you happen to be living in. That's our greater purpose. I've come to bring life, life to the full. Here's the second thing we can see from Nehemiah. He's got this vision, but here's the second thing every kingdom builder discovers sooner or later. We need to acknowledge that to accomplish God's vision, we'll have to be fully reliant on God, which spells out, Frog, as you know, fully 
reliant on God. On a human scale, given a feasibility study, I suspect that few battier ideas have ever been announced in the court of a king than Nehemiah's idea to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It must have looked so, so, so unlikely. At that point of speaking out the vision, he was way out of his depth, wasn't he? He was way beyond his own capabilities to deliver. And each of us, in our attempts to build the kingdom of God, there's going to come a time, normally sooner than later, when you realize you're out of your depth, you can't deliver. You want to lead your friends to Christ. You can't deliver. Without the Holy Spirit's help, nothing is going to happen. That's just a very, very simple example. We as a church family know a lot about this, thankfully. Every time we do anything, really, by faith, we know we can't deliver in our own strength. The Alpha course, it's running. We don't know who's going to come. We don't know how they'll be impacted. But we're praying and trusting God will deliver. The Transform Project. Many of us, many of us felt it was going to be, a, and it was, and is, a huge challenge to see the buildings transformed. But God has been faithful. God is being faithful. Fully reliant on God. Along with that, it's interesting, Nehemiah has worked out in advance exactly what's going to be needed materially for this project to be successful. And so he quantifies it. He says to the king, the king says, well, what do you want exactly? He says, well, I want to rebuild the walls. And then he says, and, and it would help me a lot if you could give me letters of safe conduct, if you could provide me with timber to make beams and gates, and for the icing on the cake, please send out the cavalry and army officers to offer me protection. And it happens. And it happens. Reading through a stack of commentaries on Nehemiah, quite a few of the commentators say it seems incredibly unlikely that a foreign king would provide this kind of help. Maybe it's not historically accurate. But we ought to be saying, and some of the commentators do say, when God's hand is upon something, the unlikely happens. This isn't the only time in history where foreigners provide help to God's purposes. There's a wonderful proverb, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Now, if you put us, yourself back in time and imagine you are Nehemiah talking to the king, of course, the project could have ended just there. That might be the end of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1 or something. Goodbye, Nehemiah, you're no longer the wine waiter. And that is the way with venturing forward with God. You don't know at the time these events happen. You can't tell whether this is the moment God chooses to open the door or not. It's a venture of faith. But he recognizes, and kingdom builders recognize this, the gracious hand of my God upon me. Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. And time after time after time, this is the pattern of life for God's faithful kingdom builders.
We seem out of our depth for a while, and then God delivers. So not only do we have to become fully reliant on God, frogs, I think we have to experience the favor of God. Doesn't really work, does it? Fog. (laughs) But that is, that is what happens to people who follow God. We should have stories and tell stories of the hand of God's favor upon us. And proof of the hand of God's favor is provision. We're at this time of our church year where we collectively ought to be thinking, and I'm encouraging us to think, how can I play my part in building up what God's doing at HT? And very deliberately as a strategy, we don't talk about money and resources very often because it's so tedious for a congregation and for visitors to hear from the front messages about money and actually paying for God's work. But it does have to be paid for if it's going to go forward. And we're watching, we have been watching over years now, God's hand of favor resting on us. It's a venture of faith going out of our depths. And uh, this coming year, if the church runs according to budget, which it will, we won't overspend, but to resource all the ministries that are happening at the moment costs £59,600 a month, which is a sizable amount of money. It calls for an 11% increase in giving over last year. Now, that's a venture of faith. That is a congregation saying, we're going to be fully reliant on God, and we will see. We will see what will happen. Let's be praying about it. Let's asking God our response. One of the things that I do know and Nehemiah discovered, and before the end of his book we discover, is people who buy into what God's project is don't regret it. I think there is a sense in which God could say to the people of Nehemiah's day and to the congregation of HT today, I couldn't have done it without your help. And of course, we couldn't do it without his help, but it's a two-way street. The vision of God, fully reliant on God, the favor of God, and then discovering, and this is a hard one, this, discovering that faithfulness to God more often involves sacrifice than stardom. It more often involves, for each of us, sacrifice than stardom. Many years ago, I remember happening to visit a church when three families came back to that church and were reporting to the congregation what their story was uh, of what had happened to them over the last five years when they'd been sent out from that church to other places in America, as it happened, to plant churches. And as I listened to these three families reporting back, there were three things in common to their story. Number one, they'd been sent out by the church, and at that time, all of them had shared this enthusiasm and excitement for what they were being commissioned to do. And they spoke about it in glowing terms. The congregation had been certain they should go, the family members had been certain they should go, and they left with a spring in their step to these three different parts of the country. And that they had in common. And that's a bit like Nehemiah leaving the king's palace with a spring in his step. 
The second thing they had in common was they found that life was much, much harder than they ever imagined. The personal cost to each, each of them, and they shared it a little bit, was much greater than they ever thought. And we can imagine, can't we, for Nehemiah that's true. Nehemiah lost his fame, he lost his privilege, he lost his pension, he lost his job security, he just becomes a traveler on the road. And the third thing that the stories had in common was each of them found that God provided in a way that they couldn't have manufactured. God came through for them. He did something which was more than the sum of the parts. There was a God event that ignited the progress of their church. Now, I thought it would be helpful for us and appropriate for us um, if I just invited Steve to come forward um, to ask him about, about a venture that he's engaged in right at the moment, which I'd like us as a church just to wise up on and to pray about. And um, probably the easiest way for us to do this is for me to invite Steve up and to just quiz him very briefly. So, Steve, just um, tell us uh, what it is that you mostly do on the staff of HT. I'm, I'm the youth pastor. And uh, what is the venture that's on your horizon? Next weekend, we're taking about 30 young people away for the youth weekend away to Letton Hall. Now, point one of this sermon, if you can remember back that far, was that we needed to let God's vision get under our skin and that Nehemiah could articulate the vision in about one sentence. So I'm sure this vision has got under your skin. What is it you're hoping for uh, next weekend? Uh, we want to make space for young people to find faith in Jesus, um, Christian fellowship, and fun. That doesn't sound bad at all. And tell me, have you felt pushed out of your depth at all? At what point do you feel reliant on God for this? <laughs> um, we, we can't really engineer any of those things. Like, I, I can't, we can't force young people to have faith or, or make friends. So basically the entire vision is in God's hands as hard as we can work. Um, I could ask you if it's been costly, and that could get quite personal. I don't know. Has it been costly in any way? Yeah, I mean, nothing surprising, but uh, it takes energy and time to do these kinds of things well. Great. And um, we're going to pray for you this week. It's next weekend that you go away. And then I shall interview you the following week, and we shall discover whether God's come through. Is that okay? Sounds good to me. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. For God's kingdom to come, God has to do something we can't manufacture. Time after time after time, we have stories at HT, just like Nehemiah had stories of the good hand of the Lord was upon him. And we come to the fourth and final point that God's kingdom builders need. If you ask me what the most important verse is in Nehemiah, I would say the pivotal moment comes incredibly close to the beginning of a book. It comes in chapter 2. It comes after Nehemiah's done his nightly survey. It comes after he's been silent in Jerusalem for three days. It comes when he calls the people together. And he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, 
Then I said to the people, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. And it's verse 18, it's the pivotal verse of the whole book. There comes a moment in building God's kingdom when you put the vision out there, you share it with friends, you share it with God's people, and you're waiting to see if God's people say, let us start rebuilding. And this happens in every department of the church's life and your life. You know, it's fantastic that Steve is taking away a group of people to Letton Hall with the youth group, but all the way along the line in the youth department, that's been our story. It's not so long ago, there were just four people in the youth group. Steve has to say to his team of volunteers, let us start rebuilding the youth work. And that happens, we have a wonderful team of volunteers. He's saying to us as a church, that's what just happened, saying, will you pray with me for what's going to happen next weekend? And we effectively are beaming back at him, hopefully. Yes, we will build with you. The moment where people buy into God's vision has to happen. That's why I believe more and more and more HT is able to build God's kingdom more and more broadly as we see God motivating us because the good hand of the Lord is upon us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the way that you inspired Nehemiah. You gave him a vision of your preferred future for Jerusalem, for him. And other people saw your hand at work and bought into what you're doing. And we thank you, Lord, that your church in Cambridge is coming alive, not just this church, but many, many churches. Thank you that you're waking us up to your vision of seeing your kingdom come and your will being done. And thank you, Lord, that the day will come when your people will shine like lights, ever increasingly bright, not just in church, but wherever we are. And we pray you give us a confidence in your purposes. We pray you'd skill us so that we can share what your design is for our lives and for the future. We pray we wouldn't be frightened of being fully reliant on you. And we pray that we will discover that your hand of favor rests upon those who surrender to you. And you do deliver. Thank you, Lord God. Amen.